I will go ahead and invite you to be seated uh, because this morning is, uh, is a little bit different than, than how we do things. This is uh, one of those passages that we will consider where I don't know if any of us have ever heard a sermon on 1 Kings 16, and, and pretty soon you're going to find out why. It is, it's, a, it's a difficult chapter to, to get through, but that's the goal this morning. Um, the reason we're going to be in 1 Kings 16, and we're going to read outside of just the passage that's printed for you in your bulletin. So if you have your Bibles, um, definitely open them to 1 Kings 16, if, even if you have it on, on your phone and you promise just to stay in your Bible app. You can also click over to 1 Kings 16. Um, the, this morning, we're beginning a new sermon series entitled The Gospel According to Elijah and Elisha. Those are two prophets, two men who are understandably uh, easily mixed up. They do very similar things. Their names sound the same, and so we can confuse them. They're also found in the book of Kings, which is a part of our Bibles that once we kind of get into the books, it, it starts to become easily forgotten and overlooked. What are these ancient kings and their sins of idolatry and their, their geopolitical records and their military successes and failures? And then these random king, uh, prophets who come on and confront these ancient kings. What in the world does any of that have to do with me? What does it have to do with our lives? And I think that's a pretty good question, right? I've heard crazier questions. And so right off the bat... I'm going to assume three things that are true, and, and, and these are three assumptions that we can bring to any passage in the Bible, but especially those really hard ones that we don't know what to do with. So three assumptions we want to bring into these hard passages. Um, the first one is that we will learn something about who God is. This is a basic part of Christian belief. The God of the Old Testament is the same God that we are worshiping here this morning. We're going to learn about his character and who he is and who he still is and forever will be. The second assumption is that we're going to learn things about ourselves. And this is tricky, right? Uh, the, the passage this morning is taking place in around 900 B.C. For all intents and purposes, that's another universe than the universe that we live in. And yet the assumption is that the human heart has not really changed all that much. We have the same basic desires, the same beliefs, the same needs. And so we'll learn something about ourselves. And the third assumption is that we're going to learn about who we need, who of course is Jesus. And so we come to the story of Elijah and his successor, Elisha. These mysterious figures, these obscure figures, men who come on the scene abruptly and they leave in just this, about the same way. And they are significant because they come on the scene in Israel in a place that is in deep spiritual crisis and profound spiritual darkness. It's really ugly and it feels kind of hopeless. And so they come as prophets with a word that confronts at times, at other times it comforts. They come performing signs and wonders, but not just for the sake of it, but like Moses before and like Jesus after, they perform signs and wonders to show the power of the kingdom of God, the reality of the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness, which seems so powerful. And so this morning is an exercise in taking inventory of the darkness of Israel. And we're going to do that because we need to see this, this radical message of what I'm saying is a, a radical message of grace that Elijah and Elisha introduce into the darkness of Israel. Now, in order to do that, 
we need to do a quick rundown of Israel's history because my assumption is that we're all over the map in terms of, of what we know about the Bible and its history. So bear with me for just a couple of minutes to set the scene. I think most of us in this room are at least somewhat familiar with King David. King David is Israel's greatest king. He is a man who has a heart after God. He is succeeded by his son Solomon. Many of us have heard the name of Solomon. We know about King Solomon. He is the wisest king that ever lived. He's the author of the Proverbs. Under Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel is at its pinnacle. It's at its peak. The military is strong. It's it's economically prosperous. Um, The nations are flocking to Israel because of how great it is under Solomon's reign. The problem is that over Solomon's life, um, his heart becomes divided and he begins to pursue idols. And his heart no longer is after the Lord. And so because Solomon's heart is divided, God says, I'm going to divide your kingdom. And so Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. He is a foolish king, and the kingdom is torn from him, and it's divided. And God selects this guy named Jeroboam. Unrelated to Solomon, he selects this guy named Jeroboam, and he says, I'm going to make you king basically over most of Israel. You can have the ten tribes in the north, and we call that Israel, and we call the south Judah. And for 200 years, these two kingdoms coexist with one another. Even though God hand-delivers the kingdom to Jeroboam, he is an idolatrous king. Can you imagine that? God says, hey, here's the lottery. (laughs) And Jeroboam says, that's great. I'm going to go set up some golden calf shrines. And that's what he does. The low point of Jeroboam's reign is he says, you know, I'm concerned that if the people worship the Lord, they're going to start having a heart for David's grandson, Rehoboam. We can't have that, so let's keep the idol factory going. And so a prophet comes to Jeroboam and says, man, I gave you the kingdom, but we're going to have to tear that kingdom from you as well. And now we're entering our text. And what we're going to see is Jeroboam was bad, and it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get darker. And so again, the point this morning is I want us to absorb this spiritual darkness in Israel. And then once we absorb that darkness to be able to see the grace that Elijah brings, even with his word of judgment, that we just get a a glimpse of this morning. All right, so let's go ahead and start unpacking the context in which Elijah shows up. Again, the trees are really difficult to navigate through, but zoom out, and I think the forest is really fascinating, and it communicates a lot to us. Uh, Keep this in mind right now. King Solomon reigned for 40 years. Jeroboam, the unrelated guy who has the north, he reigns for 22 years. That's 62 years. That's 13 and a half chapters of 1 Kings. 1 Kings 16 is 60 years. One chapter, 60 years. Prior to that, it was 13 and a half chapters. You can see why it's going to be difficult to get through this chapter. Now, some of you are getting deja vu from history classes, aren't you? You're going to have to cram names and dates, and and then you you spew them out on the exam. There won't be a test unless you want one. You can talk to me later. Um, But you're starting to get that deja vu of these are just a bunch of names. That's what 1 Kings 16 feels like. It's just a bunch of names and dates. There's there's hardly anything um, distinguishing one guy from the next. Someone's a king. He has a son. He dies. He gets assassinated. Then that guy has a son, and then he dies, and he gets assassinated, and he has a son, and he dies. So we have all of these wars and battles and their assassinations, but there are no close-up zoom-in scenes here. It's not the book of Judges. It's not the exploits of King David. This isn't Homer and his Greek epics. This isn't Shakespeare. 
Dale Ralph Davis, he was a wonderful Old Testament commentator. He maybe helps us sigh a sigh of relief when he says, this is boring. It's supposed to be boring. It's supposed to be boring. One idolatrous king commits idolatry and reigns, and he dies, and the next son is idolatrous, then he dies, and the next king is idolatrous, and he dies. And so this chapter is boring for the very simple reason that idolatry is boring. It sounds titillating. It sounds exciting, but it leaves no legacy. It's just boring. It's just one guy living, dying, rinse, repeat, keep going. Again, if you have your Bibles, take a look at chapter 15, 25 through 28. So this is just preceding 16. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Baasha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Baasha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines for Nadab, and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So Jeroboam has died. His son Nadab rules for two years before he is assassinated while Israel is at war with the Philistines in Gibbethon, which is in the land of Israel. Now, if you had just read the stories of David and Solomon, what you're thinking is, I thought we were finished with the Philistines. I thought David took care of the Philistines, and you were right to think that. And so what we're seeing is already Israel is deteriorating. They had all of these gains And now they're losing them under these future kings. So Nadab is assassinated by Baasha, and he reigns for 24 years. 1 Kings 15.34, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. So think about this. Baasha comes in and assassinates Jeroboam's dynasty, and yet he continues in the sins of Jeroboam. You would at least hope that he's going to introduce something fresh. He went to the uh, lengths of assassinating someone. But no, the sins of Jeroboam continue. Look at chapter 16, verses 8 through 10. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Baasha, began to reign over Israel in Terzah, and he reigned two years, but his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. When he was at Terzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household in Terzah, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned in his place." All right, so Baasha has a son, Elah. He's in the capital city of Tirzah. Keep that straight, right? That's easy enough for us uh, English speakers. That's the capital of Israel at this time. And so hear this. Even though war is going on, the king is back home. Now, if you remember just a few weeks ago, this might have echoes of David and Bathsheba. So all the men are out to war, and what is the king doing? He's at home luxuriating. David taking a nap and then strolling around the the palace complex. Here we have Elah, and all we really know about him is, yes, he's an idolater, and he he likes to drink. And so he's drinking himself drunk, and then this military leader named Zimri comes in and assassinates Elah. Meanwhile, the army hears of this coup of Zimri and decides they would rather follow a different commander named Omri. So Zimri miscalculates how much support he will have, and he commits suicide after reigning for seven days. He burns the palace while he is still in it. And then we come to really the heart of our passage, and some of it is printed for you. You have beginning in verse 29. I'll begin reading 1 Kings 16 at 21. 
So verse 21, then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. So Tibni died, and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him, for he walked in all of the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols." Now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his place. And the passage that's in your bulletin. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel, and Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel for 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Whew. All right, what's going on there? Israel has four years of civil war after Omri takes over. Omri wins out, and he has the most successful dynasty that the northern kingdom will have. He leaves a legacy for the next 100 to 150 years. Omri is something of a military, cultural, economic, political success story. Omri is internationally known. So right now, you can go to museums across the world, and you can see an Assyrian inscription that calls out Israel as the land of Omri. You can go to the Louvre in Paris, and you can see this Moabite stele, which talks about Israel as the land of Omri, about 150 years approximately after Omri has died. And our author couldn't care less. Omri and his sons take up a third of the total narrative of First and Second Kings. He is the most internationally impactful northern king, and all we get is seven verses. He shifted the capital to Samaria, and he was wicked. All of his exploits, all of his worldly success, we know that he expanded Israel's borders. All of that is just a footnote to our history books. And the only reason he is a footnote is because he is in seven verses in this book. I want to interject at that point is maybe this is just one of those reminders like what consumes our attention and our thoughts and our anger and our anxieties. Are we paying enough attention to eternal matters? Omri is wicked, spiritually speaking, but he is a great king. He is a geopolitically great king, and he is a footnote. Omri has a son, Ahab. We know more about Ahab. 
Ahab is the worst king that God's people have had to date. He is more wicked than all who were before him. Yeah, Jeroboam had the golden calf shrines. Um, Ahab sets up Baal worship. He marries Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal. They both have Baal in their names. That's not a good idea if you're looking to marry someone. Ahab is, is a Baal worshiper. He sets up a temple for this Canaanite god Baal. We'll talk about Baal a little bit more next week. And then the, the story ends, our section ends with this strange throwaway line, and this is really important. So Jericho is rebuilt. Hiel of Bethel, the builder, lays the foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and the gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. If you remember Jericho, this is the first city that Israel conquers when they, when they cross the Jordan into the promised land. It's, it's the fortified cities where the Israelites march around it, they blow their trumpets, and what happens to the walls? They all come down, and then Joshua pronounces this curse. The man who undertakes the rebuilding of this city, Jericho, is cursed before the Lord. He will lay its foundation at the cost of his firstborn. He will finish its gates. We don't exactly know what happened. Was it a construction site accident? Maybe. I think more than likely, this is probably child sacrifice, which would have been common in Canaanite religion. And so what's the point of all of this? It's that the re-Canaanization of Israel is going full steam ahead. Jericho was the first city conquered, so that, that already was this symbol of Israel's victory over the Canaanites. And here, by the end of chapter 16, we have the victory of Canaanite religion and spirituality over Israel. What a mess. What a mess. One king leads to another, assassinates another, then he has a kid, then he gets assassinated, and it's all the same, and it's all of this spiritual decline that leads to Ahab, who takes Israel from what we would call like a post-faithful state into a full-blown pagan nation. And all of a sudden, from stage right, <laughs> enters Elijah. Now what in the world are we going to do with this passage? We're all going to forget all these names in like two minutes. So what are we supposed to do with this kind of passage? You have three points in your bulletin. They're very brief. We had to go through that story. But I think these are three takeaways that we can get from chapter 16 of 1 Kings. The first, first of all, it's, it's the destructiveness of sin, right? What does Samaria in 900 BC have to do with Temecula today? Well, the first thing is that in many ways this is the story of sin. The language I often use is there is an inertia or a, or a gravity of sin. And I, and I use that language because it's, it's that sin has momentum, right? So once we are in sin, it's hard to get out of it because it has this momentum that carries us along. If I could give you a, a visual metaphor, maybe it's like a people mover at an airport. You're like those flat escalators that, that, that move you along so you don't have to walk. Very American thing, right? We can just stand there and be moved. But let's take off that, that surface and maybe put ice down. So it's like an icy people mover. And so, so what sin is, is that we're led by our own desires and lusts. That's what James says. And then we get on the people mover, and it's just easy to be taken along. And it's so, so hard to get out of the sin that we're stuck in. It's so hard that I would insist it takes something supernatural to get out of the sin that we're stuck in. It's called Grace. Well, that's what we see here in Israel. We see the deterioration of a people and culture. So God's people in about three generations have become the people of Baal. I think this is one of the reasons that the Elijah stories will have resonance for us. And let's be honest, everyone in this room over the age of 30 
maybe a little bit younger, but I would say at least the age of 30, we've all experienced a societal change uh, that, that none of us, like 10 years ago, ever would have expected. Rapid societal changes are happening, just like we're seeing in our passage here. And so what is our calling? Well, this is what Elijah's for. Because our calling is not to long for a golden age. There was no golden age. And in fact, it's the sins of the golden age that lay the foundation for today. So we don't pine for a golden age. There never was one. We can't despair. Resurrection people don't despair. It's unbecoming of resurrection people to despair. Instead, it's this call to be faithful to the word of God in this age to which we have been called. It's to hear the promises of God afresh, even when we are confronted by the power of sin. And it's to stake our lives on God's kingdom over against all of these kingdoms that pass away. Case in point, our friend Omri. And I think that's the point of Elijah. Holiness doesn't happen by osmosis. It never has. In fact, the opposite is true. By default, we absorb the shape of our culture. And what that means is that if God's word doesn't shape us, our kings will shape us. If God's word doesn't shape us, our kings will shape us. And who are our kings? It's our entertainers. It's our politicians. It's our cultural influencers. And Elijah addresses King Ahab, and he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. That can go on all of our business cards too. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. Because the kingdom of God is still expanding, Christ is reigning, and his church is standing. We also learn something of God's judgment in this era of redemptive history. I think oftentimes when we think of God's judgment, we think of God zapping people with lightning bolts. I would suggest we have a scarier picture of judgment in 1 Kings. It's not that these wicked kings are struck down by lightning. That would be a lot better. You can imagine if Jeroboam or Elah or Omri, if any of them were struck by lightning in God's judgment, maybe it would have woken up Israel. They would have snapped out of it. But no, the judgment's scarier than that. It's that God gives them exactly what they want. Over and over and over. God hands them over. Um, He holds back his restraining grace and he gives them the desires of their hearts. In Romans 1, Paul talks about the sinfulness of the Gentile world that exchanges the creator for the creation and indulges all of these lusts. And over and over, Paul keeps saying, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. What's the point? We see here, sin is destructive. Sin is destructive. You could almost take everything that you have read in your Bibles. Let's say if you're just reading straight through the Bible. That's this, this much. I have small print, but it's that much. Everything you've seen, God, he he liberates the people and he he brings them into a land flowing with milk and honey. He gives them his word. They build tabernacles and temples so they can have communion with God. He institutes them as a holy nation and it's like they take all of this and they just rip it up and throw it away. And the most remarkable thing is that there's another copy and God has that copy and he doesn't rip it up. Instead, God interrupts the sins of his people with grace. That's the second point. God interrupts the sins of his people with grace. Uh, God could have just moved on, couldn't he? But instead he sends his prophet. Chapter 17, verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, Elijah comes out of nowhere. 
We don't have any idea where Tishbe is. And this is so unexpected because Elijah's a prominent figure, isn't he? He shows up kind of in a mysterious way in the middle of Kings, but then future Old Testament prophets will call upon Elijah. And of course, in the New Testament, Elijah is a big figure. So here is this figure, and, and yet he comes out of nowhere. We know nothing about him. We don't have his biography. We don't know where he went to seminary. He just shows up. The northern kingdom is like this factory with this conveyor belt of sin and idolatry and Elijah just shows up on the floor and bam, he hits the emergency off switch. Elijah in Hebrew means my God is the Lord. What better name for a prophet to call the people of Baal back to God. My God is the Lord, strolls through the king's courts and announces judgment on Ahab and Israel and with Elijah's ministry of judgment, we now have this intrusion of grace. The most gracious thing God could do is interrupt the sins of Israel. They are not looking for God. They are not interested in God. They are not concerned about obedience before God. And yet God cares so much for them, he sends his prophet. Does that story sound familiar at all? A little bit, right? It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of your life and my life. It's a picture of God's grace toward undeserving sinners. It's this dramatic story that encapsulates who we are. It's not that we are the spiritually minded. It's not that we have some kind of aptitude for holiness. No, we're all following the kings of the world. It's that God intervenes and intrudes into our lives with his grace. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, such were some of you. You were the unrighteous. You were the sexually immoral. You were the idolaters, but you were washed because grace intervened. I'll never understand for the life of me why the God of the Old Testament is often caricatured as so judgmental and angry. I mean, how do we act when we are slighted in just like the smallest ways, right? Our sense of justice just becomes inflamed and we get so angry. And yet here is God just getting slapped in the face continually by his people. And all we see is this incredible patience and mercy to the point that he refuses to let his people go. The gospel of Elijah is the one-way love of God and being committed to his people. That he is faithful even when they are faithless. And because this is still the story on repeat, right? It just keeps happening over and over. One greater than Elijah is needed and he comes. This is our last point where we'll close that this story also anticipates the greater king that we need. We need a better king. Throughout this section, it says not only that the king sinned, but they made Israel to sin. As the king went, the people went. That's the point. King after king comes and fails. And the original readers of Kings were in exile, by the way. They were wondering, why in the world are we in exile, away from the land, away from God's promises? And so this historian here has given them the story of, of why you're in exile, and so what they're reading is they're trying to put together all of, all of making sense of the world and, and making sense of their suffering is they're seeing here all of these kings that have come and they have failed and they have failed and they failed. And so they're just waiting for that faithful king like David to come. When will that faithful king come and bring peace? A king who won't lead us into sin like the kings of Israel, but a king who will lead us into righteousness. There's this wonderful contrast right between the kings of Israel and Jesus. They made Israel to sin. Our king doesn't make us to sin. He makes us righteous in him, holy in him, and lovely in him. The kings of Israel made the people sin. Jesus, our king, takes our sin. 
He bore our sin. He does not lead us into idolatry. He takes those of us who are idolaters and he dies for idolatry so that we might be freed from the bondage of sin and death. Jesus, our king, brings life where there is death. He brings hope where there is despair. He brings righteousness where there is sin. So I hope I've whetted your appetite for this prophet who will come right into the pit of darkness, right into this moment of despair where there appears to be no hope because the gospel of Elijah and then later the gospel of Elisha prepares us for the gospel of Jesus. It tells the story of a broken world lost in sin, of God's grace that intrudes into the world and the story that culminates in a righteous king eternally reigning. Elijah comes on the scene, a light in the darkness that prepares us for the light in the darkness. And the light shines in the darkness, as the Gospel of John tells us. And friends, the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Lord, we need you to do a work this morning, especially uh, in, a, in a passage that feels so removed from us. A passage that so easily can be, can be skimmed through and, and forgotten. Who, who can keep track of all of these names and all of these dates and all of these places? And yet, and yet through this word, Lord, uh, what, what a powerful picture of, of the darkness of sin uh, do we see here. And yet what an even more powerful picture of your grace. The intrusion of your prophet into a people who are not looking for your prophet. The intrusion of, of your grace into a people who are lost in the darkness and lost in their sin. At, at its basic element, that is, that is the story that we celebrate uh, today. And it's a story that we see ourselves I'm so completely aligned with and in. Lord, that we've come to celebrate the intrusion of grace into our lives. So Lord, as we continue in these stories of, of Elijah and Elisha, uh, we pray that we would grasp a, a, a more dynamic, thicker, fuller view of your heart for sinners. And Lord, that our love for the greater prophet, Jesus, uh, would only grow more and more. Holy Spirit, would you do that kind of work among us through your word, um, by your means of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.